0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. How can data help us respond to the climate emergency?
1: There is still an opportunity to bend the curve on emissions and avoid, you know, the worst case scenarios. But that window's rapidly closing.
0: The Catholic Church is one of the largest landholders in the world. One effort is mapping their lands to work toward climate solutions. The last thing you want is another cool tech platform that
2: doesn't get anything done, (laughs) but rather helps people who already are committed and intelligent to even get more information that will help them continue to make better decisions.
0: And what are the benefits of mapping heat on a very local level?
2: It's really important to not just
3: look at a city and say, "Okay, so this is going to be the temperature in 30 years from now, but you have to really know neighborhood by neighborhood, what's going on, so that you can help the neighborhoods that are most in need.
0: What's the value of maps and data when it comes to combating our climate crisis? Climate One's empowering conversations explore all aspects of the climate emergency. I'm Greg Dalton. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recently released an updated set of so-called climate normals, averages it compiles every decade. And to no one's surprise, they showed our world has gotten warmer. In 2017, it got so hot in Phoenix that airplanes literally could not take off and airlines canceled dozens of flights. Ariana Medell is an associate professor at Arizona State University and senior scientist with the Global Institute of Sustainability and Innovation. She studies extreme heat on the local level.
3: Last year, I think we broke every record in the books. We've had over a hundred and 44, I think, days of 100 degrees. We had 53 days over 110. So uh, it was fairly hot here in Phoenix. It's it's really an ideal place to study heat. It's like a living laboratory.
0: You're in the right place. And what are the factors that affect how humans experience heat on the local level? Like what determines the kind of micro factors on a particular block in a particular neighborhood?
3: The, the factor that most influences how we actually experience heat when we're outdoors is the direct sunlight so it's the radiation that hits our bodies from from the direct sunlight the shortwave radiation and there's a concept called mean radiant temperature which is slightly different from air temperature so you're probably familiar with air temperature that's a temperature value you get from from your weather forecast uh, but mean radiant temperature is more so mean radiant temperature is the radiation that hits a body from 360 degrees from all directions. So it's the shortwave radiation that comes from the sun. That's the direct sunlight, the visible sunlight, the UVB. Um, but it's also the long wave radiation, which is the essentially the heat that's get, that gets emitted from hot surfaces. So uh, imagine you're standing on top of a asphalt parking lot and, and the asphalt parking lot has been sun exposed for most of the day. So that heat gets stored in the asphalt and slowly radiates back at your body. And so mean radiant and temperature incorporates all of this, the long wave and short wave radiation. And it's a, a good measure of how you actually feel when you're standing outside in the sun.
0: Right. And you talk about uh, asphalt absorbing heat and then releasing it. We hear a lot about urban heat islands. Can you explain what they are and why they are a problem for people living in cities?
3: Urban heat islands are a big problem because they make cities warmer, especially at night. As we build cities, we bring in all these artificial materials into the city. We have to build infrastructure, roads, sidewalks. They consist of concrete and asphalt. And those materials are really great at storing the heat during the day. They have a very high thermal admittance. So that means as the sun hits those surfaces during the day, they heat up and they store the heat like a sponge. And then as the sun goes down... Uh, the, the surfaces slowly release the heat back into the atmosphere, which makes the city warmer at night than it would be if we didn't have these artificial surfaces.
0: Wow. So just when people are looking for relief and cooling off in the evening, there's <laughs> their driveway and the parking lot is is releasing more heat. So they got to Exactly. <laughs> OK. Heat is a leading cause of weather related deaths in the country. What are the other human health impacts of excessive heat?
3: Heat is really a, a, a silent threat. You can't, you can't really see it. So it's different from your hurricane or flooding or tsunami where you immediately see the impact. So heat is a silent killer. So as it's hot in the summer and, and this, this stress on the human body accumulates over time, people get more and more stress. And, and this causes, in, in the long term, more morbidity and mortality in regions that are hot. Um, but it's also the small things. Like you would like to walk your dog in the middle of the day and it's just too hot and you get sunburned and and it's just really an aspect of life that affects everyone here in Phoenix during the day.
0: I was speaking to a urologist recently, and he said, yeah, uh, we see more kidney problems during heat waves because people get dehydrated. That was a new one to me. I'm constantly thinking, uh, I think I've heard a lot of all the climate impacts, but airplanes can't take off, and, and you know, kidney problems during heat waves was a, was a new one to me. Um, do some groups feel the health impacts more than others, elderly, children, et cetera? Who's more vulnerable?
3: There is definitely an, an equal distribution in, in the impacts of heat. Um, so, people like you and me who can afford to run their air conditioning, we're probably fine most of the summer. But people who cannot afford to run their air conditioning twenty-four-seven, people who don't have a lot of money, people who are older, who maybe don't uh, don't notice the heat as much. So As you get older, your body kind of loses its ability to to detect. Of these heat stress situations um so so those folks are much more vulnerable than your average person
0: Right, and that's kind of on the individual level. It's well established that wealthy neighborhoods have more trees and shade. I understand your research is focused on technically measuring heat in different ways, but if you look at the literature and, and the research of others, is there a correlation between race and class and the impacts of heat on people in cities?
3: There is definitely a correlation between the heat distribution in a city and the demographics and and the socioeconomics in a city. Uh, What we see frequently is that neighborhoods that have lower income families also have less trees. Um, They're hotter. If you look at surface temperature maps, uh, you see that those neighborhoods are really hotter during the day and at night than neighborhoods that have more trees that are wealthier. And and that's a common pattern in, in many cities around the world.
0: And as I was reading about your work, I thought, gee, how long is it before some of the websites that incorporate property data and, you know, this house has uh, is in a good school district and it has the, its access walkable score. And, and I, I thought about, well, how long is it going to be before your data is incorporated into those websites so that people can know how hot it's going to be if they buy this house? Uh, is that happening?
3: I I wonder why people haven't done this yet, actually, uh, because the data exists. So there are satellite images that show you the heat distribution in cities, and it would be fairly easy to intersect that information with uh, housing data and add a heat safety score to your neighborhood.
0: Right. Some desert cities like Tucson have adopted goals for tree planting to help reduce the urban heat effects. Do you think that makes a difference to have specific goals for planting trees? I
3: think that setting these targets is important to to get something done, to have a goal, to, to have an aim. Uh, but broadly increasing the tree canopy cover to a random percentage of more trees is not necessarily helping because trees have a very localized impact. So it's really important to Uh, do targeted interventions and plant those trees where people actually walk, where people exercise, where people are outdoors so that those trees have the maximum benefit.
0: You were involved in a report titled 50 Grades of Shade that measure the effectiveness of trees and engineered shade. What do you think cities and residents should do to provide the most effective shelter from rising heat?
3: There are many ways to to provide shade and cities frequently uh, experience these infrastructure challenges where they, they have a location where they would really like to plant a tree, say a bus stop, for example. Uh, but then there are these sewer lines or power lines in the way businesses complain that, that people can't beat their signage. Um, so, so in this 50 grades of shade study, we looked at shade alternatives to see if there are any other viable types of shade that could be used in those situations. And what we found is that Generally, any shade is great. Um, so no matter what type of shade you use, um, you, you're really reducing the heat stress and the heat load on a person's body. But uh, engineered shade types such as shade sails, um, structural shade from awnings, overhangs can, can be as effective or even more effective than a tree.
0: Mm, right.
3: And they may not require a, a lot of irrigation or maintenance such as trees. Um, so, so there are certain benefits to, to engineered shade types as well.
0: Ariana Medell is assistant professor at Arizona State University and a senior scientist at the Global Institute of Sustainability and Innovation. Tell me about Marty, your robot.
3: Marty is a mobile weather station uh, that can measure how you experience heat. So it measures the heat load on a human body. It has Three net radiometers, and they look a little bit like WALL-E. So when we go out measuring with Marty, we frequently uh, get asked, "So is this a Mars rover? Is this Wally? What are you doing here?" <laughs> um, so so Marty can measure the the radiation or the mean radiant temperature that hits the body from all directions, and we can pull Marty literally anywhere.
0: And what's the benefit of mapping heat on that level? What can we learn from that data?
3: Mapping heat using Marty is a very human-centric approach because Marty, you, you could think of him as a human, right? So Marty can go where humans can go. Marty has the same height, the same size approximately as a human. Marty really measures how we feel the heat as opposed to just the air temperature that you get from the weather forecast. Um, so that's why Marty is really great at measuring shade and, and the impact of, of different urban designs, different landscapings and how people actually
0: experience the heat. And what are some of the real-world implications of this research?
3: It is projected that Phoenix will break many, many more heat records in, in the near future. So, so conditions anywhere in the world will just get uh, more extreme. Heat waves will last longer. Uh, they, they will be hotter. Um, they will occur more frequently. And as these conditions become more harsh and more extreme, we have to make sure that people can still be active outdoors. And in order to achieve this, we have to come up with urban design strategies and interventions that can protect people from the heat.
0: I flew into Portland, Oregon a while back and saw a sea of white roofs as the airplane was descending. Why aren't white roofs the norm, especially in hot regions? It seems so simple and cost-effective.
3: That's a good question. Painting roofs white works in a way that the um, energy that comes from the sun is actually reflected back into the atmosphere as opposed to being stored inside the roof because the roof, similar to the asphalt and concrete, is a, has a very high thermal admittance. So it's really great at storing the heat during the day and releasing it at night. So if you paint a roof white or with a highly reflective paint, it can stay cool during the day. It's not going to heat up as much, so that will reduce your urban heat island. It, it's a very effective way of, of cooling an urban area, and we have plenty of roofs available.
0: Right, and I also saw something on your website about painting sidewalks to reflect heat. That was a new one. Uh, is that effective, and is that happening? The City of
3: Phoenix last year started a pilot project where they painted... Roads in eight district neighborhoods with a highly reflective paint. It's a, a type of coating that increases the reflections. So as the sun hits the asphalt, it's going, the energy is going to be reflected back into the atmosphere as opposed to being stored in the road, which makes the road stay cooler to the touch during the day and also then reduces the urban heat island at night. In terms of the results, it definitely reduces the actual surface temperature of the road up to 10, 16 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was actually fairly um, sizable.
0: Right. So we might be seeing, you know, shiny, glossy white roads instead of black roads, uh, asphalt roads in the, in the future. How do you see localized mapping fitting in with larger mapping of climate impacts?
3: I think local mapping is really important because resources for heat interventions are limited. Cities don't have endless amounts of money to plant trees and to provide shade. So so producing these localized maps helps cities actually plan those interventions and find areas that, that are in the most need for these interventions. So it's really important to not just look at a city and say, okay, so this is going to be the temperature in 30 years from now, but you have to really know neighborhood by neighborhood, what's going on, so that you can really target your interventions and help the neighborhoods that are most in need.
0: We'll also talk about the the cultural adaptation. um, I lived a lot, lived in China and and other places in Asia, where people just carry around umbrellas for heat, something we don't really see in the United States. I'm curious about the kind of the human adaptation. We've been talking about planting trees and building uh, overhangs and shelter and that sort of thing. You know, I don't know if your robot is gonna gonna you know, go around with an umbrella, maybe not. but
3: well, actually, we had um, jokingly, we had planned a study uh, called Marty Poppins, where we <laughs> uh, wanted to investigate the effectiveness of different types of umbrellas and put different types of umbrellas on top of Marty and see how he feels. So so that's definitely something that's on our research agenda
0: right okay marty poppins i like it so on a personal level do you think heat will ever cause you to move away from arizona or are you so excited to stay there and study it as it rises and rises
3: i'm actually tired of rain i'm from germany so <laughs> i'm actually perfectly <laughs> desert adapted and perfectly happy in the heat um so i don't think there will be a point in time where I will be moving away from Arizona because of the heat, but I could see that other people might make other choices and this might be a consideration for some To as summers get hotter and hotter and and we have more and more 110 degree days.
0: Yeah, internal climate migration is already starting to happen in the United States. Arianna Medell, thanks for coming on Climate One.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.
0: Ariana Medell is an associate professor at Arizona State University studying extreme heat. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the power of data to respond to the climate crisis. Coming up, we hear about an effort to map the land holdings of the Catholic Church to find opportunities for climate and environmental solutions.
2: It's been um, not just a massive digital development effort, but a massive uh, storytelling effort for communities, um, walking them through kind of um, getting excited about this.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about how mapping at the local, regional, and global level can help humanity respond to the climate emergency. I've been hosting and producing this show for 14 years, most of the time booking and interviewing guests on my own. Happily, our team is growing, and we're starting to include more voices on the show. One of those is producer Arianna Brocious, who also edits the program. She'll be a regular voice on Climate One going forward. Today, Arianna talks with a young Catholic geographer who is founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization Goodlands. Molly Burhans approached the Vatican in 2016 about using advanced software to map the lands under Catholic ownership as a starting point for climate action.
4: You're a Catholic and a cartographer. What inspired you to look to your religion as an avenue for combating climate change? Initially,
2: I was really looking um, at land use and regenerative agriculture as a whole. Climate change being a critical piece of, you know, the kind of systemic environmental problems we're facing, including biodiversity loss and habitat destruction. And I was considering becoming a, a nun, and I had met these really cool nuns. There are really cool nuns, and I noticed that their land management at the the large mother house was, uh, you know, there were erosion issues, invasive species, and I at the time had co-founded my first company, which is Grow Operative, a worker-owned cooperative in Buffalo, which is one of those indoor vertical farming companies, and you know, I saw, wow, like before i do this you know what could i bring to this community would be that you know sustainable land management including uh, regenerative agriculture because i realized it was just a multiplier for every single mission you know um i think any belief system whether it's you know catholic muslim um even you know agnosticism humanism we all share um i think a common core value of, um, you know, helping others in need and, you know, helping our communities flourish and and a desire for the world to flourish. And, you know, I saw that land and the environment is a multiplier of every single one of these missions. It was just kind of seeing that, oh, wow, we're like collectively as a network, the largest landholder in the world, and there's no one really doing this. And like everything we do would benefit from sustainable land management. Right. So, for those who don't know, what's the Laudato Si? Laudato Si was the Pope's Pope Francis's uh, encyclical on the environment. His this document, and it is an absolutely. Um, if you haven't read it, I completely just recommend checking it out. It interweaves spirituality and science with the Catholic faith and with climate change. And also, you know, at the end, there is an invitation of prayer for the faithful. There's one, but also he has one um, included for everyone within that document. He beautifully shows, I think, how, how this is a problem for all of us right now, you know, and
4: we need everyone to work together. And how influential was that document on you and the work you do? you know,
2: before that I was really into environmentalism. I mean, my my parents, you know, I grew up in a house that was like part of this Sierra club. And like, we always, you know, spent time in nature growing up as a kid and my parents are scientists. And like, you know, the, the non-farm thing was way before Laudato Si. That was like a couple of years, two years before. So it was like kind of moving, you know, before then. I think Laudato Si um, really helped create the energy for the larger vision. I wasn't afraid to be Catholic and be in the public sphere and be doing this and like be a totally imperfect human who's a work in progress, which I shouldn't have been afraid of in the first place. But you know, I guess I was kind of like young, and when you do something big, it takes some courage.
4: Absolutely. Well, you have this remarkable story of approaching the Vatican as a 26-year-old uh, to learn more about the landholdings of the Catholic Church, and can you just take us back to that moment? Like what motivated you to try to meet directly with the Vatican? What was your mission and your goal at that point?
2: So I wanted to start with a global vision of classifying dioceses. Um, I knew that if we were going to, say, work with researchers' algorithms for, say, stormwater management or certain, you know, types of um, understanding, you know, different foliage patterns and habitat patterns in an area. I wanted to be able to classify every diocese in the world so that we could scale the application of these algorithms that were used to analyze the environmental, social and financial kind of landscape of a property portfolio within whichever jurisdiction it was. And, um, you know, also to be able to classify dioceses to see if they were Um, Like a map that we've made is like where the Catholic Church is the most important non-state actor for biodiversity preservation, which areas are um, really highlighted risks for climate migration, Um, immigration or emigration, you know, and those are areas where I see like our work. Being maybe less like, oh yeah, we're going to do conservation here and focus on, even though that's critical in those places. But I think like in emergency situations, it's more about okay, land use. How can we get this data? How can we work with people to get it to like Jesuit Refugee Services or somebody else who can help prevent you know informal settlements, which can be really damaging to the environment, you know, and address immediate needs. So so that's how I ended up in the Vatican. Was I, I we had been working and researched uh, for months and months and months. We just couldn't find these maps. <laughs> and uh, it was so strange. So I was like, no way, I'll just go to the Vatican and I'll, I'll get them. And one of my mentors had met a couple of cardinals at a, at a conference and she mentioned my work and I got one of their emails and I got the Vatican switchboard number. <laughs> and I, uh, I just started like calling and emailing. I had uh, created the graphic prototype for these maps. And I met with these cardinals. So that's how that happened, I guess. That's, yeah, and they hadn't, They didn't have the maps.
4: <laughs> well, that, that part of it, I think, is so interesting because, um, right, so you have this meeting with them and you sort of discover that the church has, in a sense, like lost track of all their lands or in any sort of comprehensive way. And uh, when I read that, I found that to be hugely surprising. Were you surprised? Were you expecting to go in there and find like a, you know, a database of maps you
2: know, I was expecting to find like diocese maps at the very least. I mean, that's not properties. Properties is a, a bit different. You know, I think, bless the naivety I had at the time for thinking that they would have it. Nevertheless, you know, governments even or municipalities. I mean, it's it's actually shocking once you start to learn how so many of these large institutional governmental and even private landholders really just don't know what they have. Um, I went into this assuming that, you know, we would go in and we'd use their map data to just do the analyses and run the design workshops and get the system set up. But no, and and the the result of this all was that um, this is Goodland's fifth year. Most of the, since I founded it in, in the fall of 2015, most of that time has been devoted to foundational data development, and contracts with um, record digitization of property.
4: I'm talking with Molly Burhans, founder and executive director of GoodLands, a nonprofit mapping organization that's working to empower change and climate action through land stewardship. So, Molly, can you tell me a bit more about some of the land use changes that you have made possible, maybe, or that um, you've explained could be options for the Catholic-held lands that could impact climate change? I think one of my uh,
2: most basically, almost simple, stupid contributions um, of the last handful of years has actually been communication and helping people realize that they should understand the environment if they're going to do environmental programs. Maps have really helped um, communities uh, be able to see that kind of environmental why that piece is so important i mean we have done a lot of this work pro bono i've had to carve out kind of this space of first okay this is what a map a digital map is most people what why do maps matter why are we going to do this why do why should we care you know okay i guess we should have an excel spreadsheet and of our properties but why do we need anything else you know and so it's been this like it's been um, not just a massive digital development effort, but a massive uh, storytelling effort for communities, um, walking them through, kind of um, getting excited about this. And now we have so many requests, actually, that we can't like take them all, and we're working to expand right now, which is really exciting. And we have a lot of environmentally focused requests.
4: You mentioned that you know one possible use of land, as we see more of climate impacts and climate disruption, will be maybe providing space for for migrants or people who are kind of forced to move because of those changes. And I think that's a really interesting sort of forward-looking use of some of these properties. So it's your belief, right, that the Catholic Church has a role to play in some of these large-scale changes because they are already sort of, as an institution, it is focused on being inclusive and just, and that's sort of part of its mission, right? Right.
2: Yeah, I would say even further, I love, uh, James Joyce has (laughs) uh, a a quote, I think it might be in Finnegan's Wake. it's, here comes Catholic, here comes everyone, just because we're the most organized, even though we're pretty disorganized, but we're the most organized (laughs) religious institution on the planet, you know, like, as far as its its size, and, um, you know, there's a lot of other sub denominations or different groups, but the Catholic Church is you know, has that infrastructure that really nobody nobody else has globally. And it is the largest network of uh, humanitarian aid, unless you count all member organizations of the UN. It is the largest network of healthcare globally, uh, it, Catholic health facilities are 26% of healthcare facilities globally. Um, it's the largest network of non-governmental um, education serving over 54 million students around the world. So of course, when I found good Goodlands, I was like, oh yeah, they must have the largest network of conservation. I'm so excited to be a conservation nun. And then I realized I would have to be the original conservation nun maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, with migration, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it's not only migration. Actually, I think having a group like the Catholic Church um, you know, involved in climate solutions um, or people, like you said, who are looking at this kind of inclusive view is, is potentially, um, I see it as important. And one of the reasons that I see it as important is, um, you know, when we look at the history of, of what do we mean by ecosystem self? What do we mean by landscape restoration? The reality is landscape ecology, (laughs) Richard Foreman, really made it into a science in the 80s. I mean it's still becoming itself. You know, we in the Anthropocene, we don't know. We just don't really get we know what doesn't work. We know what's making people unhealthy. But we're in this age where I'm actually, it gives me so much hope to think that like as we define and understand how we really relate to ecosystems, human health has to be a, a piece of that. And there has to be a concern with climate solutions for every single human on this planet and their inherent dignity. Otherwise, this is going to be really divisionary and, you know, um, I don't think it's going to work,
4: climate solutions. Are there other large landholders or institutions that could benefit from this kind of mapping, especially when we want to look at the scale of what we're going to need to do to sort of address climate disruption?
2: Yes, is going to be the first thing uh, that I'm going to say I love so much. Like I stepped back the other week, actually, to look at Goodlands, kind of how we've been working with these parallel processes of the Vatican Cartography Institute, which is under renegotiation. Um, so the Vatican Cartography Institute, the spatial data infrastructure for the Catholic community, the kind of regional clients that we work with those are really the kind of contracts and and what i've described mostly is that regional work and then there's the boots on the ground which is the champions the of uh, who are really excited about the environmental or social causes or um you know locally or the uh you know the catholic groups there's so many like focalare or you know catholic workers who who um, can really like make things come to life? Because you know the last thing you want is another cool tech platform that doesn't get anything done, <laughs> you know, but rather helps people who already are committed and intelligent to even get more information that will help them continue to make better decisions. You know, at the are more scientifically informed. Land and religion are have really been such drivers of civilization. You know what we believe, um, and uh, what sustains us and our civilizations and the power that comes with land. And the two together, I think, are very powerful uh, leverage points. Within the Vatican Cartography Institute, hopefully, or even outside, um, having a a kind of convocation of different uh, major NGOs within the Catholic world and groups to to discuss spatial data infrastructure. So infrastructure, what is that? It's, It's the policy, it's the people, and it's the technology coming together to help facilitate Interoperability, so that really transference of information between them in secure ways, and also um, to support you know the use of that information. Well, so a good example would be the spatial data infrastructure. For example, could help if we did a mapping project in you know California, and the bigger the big one hits, Um, that infrastructure could help them quickly you know open their data with their own approval, with the security standards in place to disaster relief immediately that we see as outside of the Vatican. And we have, um, that's actually in its third phase of development. And there's like a open kind of hub of non-sensitive information that we've launched. You know, it's something that really shows that provides this framework for any, you know, multinational organization to intelligently implement some sort of coordinated you know, environmental programs or that can also maximize, you know, other mission-based work that they're doing.
4: I've been speaking with Molly Berhans, founder and executive director of Goodlands, a nonprofit mapping organization working to empower change and climate action through land stewardship. Molly, thanks for being on Climate One. Thank you so much, Ariana.
0: You're listening to a conversation about using maps to advance climate solutions. Coming up, we discuss a new program that uses satellites to identify specific sources of carbon emissions.
1: Someone needs to take action now to clean up uh, what is a very wasteful set of infrastructure and practices right now in the energy sector, in the waste management sector, in the agriculture sector. You know, we just don't have time for do-overs and missed opportunities because the data is incomplete or bad.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about using maps and data to help address the climate emergency. Technology for measuring the totality of global carbon emissions is highly refined. For example, we know that half of all the carbon pollution humans have ever dumped into the sky has happened in just the last three decades. That's mind blowing, but understanding the specific sources of those emissions at the scale of factories or communities has been more elusive. Carbon Mapper is a new nonprofit organization that uses satellites to identify carbon emissions down to the level of a farm or factory. It's a public private partnership that includes universities and NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab and is backed by philanthropists. Carbon Mapper CEO, Riley Duran says it's built on a system of systems.
1: The Carbon Mapper program is both building and launching new satellites that will begin to launch in 2023. Um, It also includes airborne remote sensing surveys of key regions around the U.S. to find uh, methane super emitters and work with uh, decision makers to do something about it. Uh, and we all, and it also includes the data systems and the analytics um, that um, puts that data in the hands of businesses, governments, and the public where it needs to be to support decision making. And so all of that uh, is under vat tent is a system of systems.
0: Who have you caught cheating or under-reporting their emissions of climate-eating gases?
1: So I, I, w- I would start by saying what what have we found in terms of methane emissions and, and CO2 emissions that was surprising and I I hesitate to use to to use the phrase you did um cheating because I think the the biggest challenge we have is just general lack of awareness uh on the part of operators regulators and the general public about where greenhouse gas emissions are occurring, how much they're emitting, and why.
0: So are you saying that companies have leaking pipelines and leaking facilities, and they don't even know how much is coming out because they don't have the equipment or they don't have the financial incentive to know what's leaking out from their uh, factory or refinery or pipeline?
1: Yeah, I think that's generally generally right. Um, there are certainly cases where facility operators are well aware – um, but they have emissions from a piece of equipment, um, either because they're not required to mitigate those emissions, which is, you know, is the case in most sectors in most regions today. they just, there isn't much in the way of rules or regulations regarding methane, although that's changing. The bigger challenge is that the technology required to find, uh, pinpoint and measure methane emissions at the scale of pieces of equipment, where people can actually do something about it, uh, that technology is tends to be expensive, and it's difficult to deploy it over large areas uh, quickly. And so, there's just there's there are a lot of gaps in the net right now.
0: And what are the relative climate impacts of carbon and methane? We certainly hear a lot more about carbon, but we know that methane is more important.
1: Sure. So, so the, and the first thing to, to To remember is that that both methane and carbon dioxide are carbon molecules. They both have carbon in them. People often use carbon as shorthand for carbon dioxide. There's more in terms of the magnitude of CO2 emissions, but methane um, really packs a very powerful climate punch. By that, I mean, its global warming potential on a 20-year time horizon is nearly 90 times greater uh, than an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. Additionally, it is important to understand from air quality perspectives because methane is both an ozone precursor, and in many cases, uh, it comes along with co-emitted reactive uh, uh, pollutants that have health impacts.
0: Right. And one reason why methane is sometimes often called one of the super pollutants. Um, You collaborate with operators of polluting facilities, land dumps, landfills, and the oil industry. What are those conversations like? How do you walk into those rooms with industries who know that there's more eyes in the sky and more eyes on their operations now?
1: You know, frankly, it's a mixed bag. Um, On the one hand, our research collaborations with facility operators, as well as, uh, you know, state and local. Regulatory agencies is largely a coalition of the motivated. Um, you know, <laughs> these tend these tend to be larger larger companies that have um, you know well established or, or or recently established decarbonization targets. Um, so I'm talking here about some of the the major oil and gas producers, um, natural gas utilities, um, some of the larger waste management companies uh, in the U.S. and in Europe.
0: So they have plans to to reduce this stuff and to reduce it, they got to measure it, to, uh, manage it, and to manage it, they got to measure it. And they're, you're helping them,
1: right? I mean, th- these those sorts of organizations have you know gone on record as establishing um, ambitious targets for reducing their methane and CO two footprints, and there are a variety of motivations. You know, the motivations range from this is you know pressure from shareholders. Um, it also there are also economic incentives. I mean, if you think about it, uh, particularly with the natural gas. Industry leaks are equivalent to product loss, um, and then of course there are regulatory incentives. They're paying attention to what's happening in the government space, and they know the writings on the wall in terms of future regulation. And I think they're trying to get out in front um, by making the investments now uh, to clean up their act. But all that said, it is also true that there's a, a huge range of actors out there, and it includes other entities that are, you know, probably less forward-looking. And to be fair, it also includes businesses and sectors of society that simply just aren't as far along technologically. And the best example I can give is that is agriculture. You know, we're often talking about small family-owned farms, uh, and we're also talking about, you know, biogas produced by livestock uh, and things like rice cultivation, and um, there aren't necessarily immediate solutions to those, um, to those emissions, although there are people working on it.
0: Right, though you mentioned small ranchers, et cetera, there's also huge factory farms, which are massive sources of of methane. You mentioned the changing regulatory environment. We've seen in the headlines recently that that you know uh, the previous uh, administration, presidential administration, rolled back methane rules. Now that now they're they're back again. So updates on that, on those rules, and why they're important, and how that connects to your work.
1: My sense is, and again, I'm not a, a policy expert, but just in terms of talking to people in these sectors. Despite the, the the back and forth with U.S. regulatory policy over the last few years, there's actually been a fair bit of stability in other jurisdictions. So examples of that include action by state actors like California and Colorado, and also major international actors. And by that, I'm referring to the European Union. Uh, the Europeans are talking very seriously about establishing um, new intensity standards on natural gas supplied to EU member nations. By intensity, I mean... Um, What fraction of gas produced is lost during transmission or delivery to the customer? And they're establishing or or have stated an intent to establish standards that are measurable and ideally independently verified so that um, uh, customers like EU member nations and potentially ultimately states and uh, localities in the U.S. can look at the uh, look at the methane intensity Uh, certification of a given supplier and make informed decisions about where they want to purchase their gas. And what we are hearing from the industry is that, again, I think these companies see the writings on the wall and um, they're not going to wait around um, for things to settle down.
0: Riley Duran is CEO of Carbon Mapper and a research scientist at the University of Arizona. So it sounds like, you know, there's a patchwork of uh, efforts across the state, uh, inconsistency at the federal level. You know, Are government agencies doing a good job monitoring the emissions of methane?
1: I, I think it's important to, to parse that a bit and understand this, what monitoring means. There are existing well-established frameworks in some jurisdictions, and I'm talking here about the U.S. EPA and in states like California using something called a greenhouse gas emission inventory. So those are accounting protocols that use um, the best available activity data. For example, how much uh, fuel or livestock or or commerce or or energy supplied. And that activity data combined with emission factors, that is what a certain activity should emit in terms of kilograms of methane per hour or, or CO2 or other gases. Putting those two things together, activity and emissions uh, factors, allow regulators like the EPA and CARB, the California Air Resources Board, to generate an inventory um, of greenhouse gas emissions within their jurisdiction. And that's an aggregate total for the whole jurisdiction, but it's it's usually divided into, into key emission sectors and activities, and it, it tends to be aggregated at the level of a year. And so that is, quote unquote, one form of monitoring. But I think what you really mean in this context of monitoring is direct measurement. And that is using measurements of the atmosphere, um, either with handheld instruments or aircraft or satellites to to directly pinpoint and track emissions. And in that case, the answer is most decidedly no. Most governments um, are not doing that kind of monitoring, again, because the technology is expensive and challenging.
0: Will this project be able to verify the self-reported emission numbers that countries are putting forward, you know, to meet their Paris goals? Are you kind of, you know, uh, independent um, uh, auditor, so to speak, of what countries are saying about their emissions?
1: Yeah, I think we're we're part of that. So the, the program that we're working on, Carbon Mapper, is in fact designed particularly to address reporting and verification of emissions at the scale of individual facilities, both for methane and CO2 globally, and, and not just to check the reporting, but actually to provide data um, to operators who may not make be making the measurements because it's just um, not financially practical or physically practical to do that. And so we're both trying to improve confidence in reporting where it occurs, but also trying to deliver data where it doesn't exist or where it would be difficult to deploy.
0: Right. You partner with the state of California and the former chair of the state's air regulator. Mary Nichols is on your advisory board. California caught VW and other automakers cheating on their tailpipe emissions. The scandal cost VW nearly $40 billion in criminal fines and other costs. And it really changed the auto industry. VW pivoted toward electric cars. They're investing, uh, you know, they're it's a different company now. At least they say they are. They're uh, building an a, a electric uh, vehicle charge. Network across the United States, it was a big deal, and that was happened because um, California had the technical capability to find these companies cheating. What would be an analogous case of revelation and reform resulting from Carbon Mapper? You know, who were the big utilities? Where's the big sources of methane out there? And I understand that there's there's regulatory difference here that it's, some of this reporting there's not explicit cheating in the same way there was uh, in the auto industry, but is there an analog in in the industrial sector for what could be a big Revelation and and, and sea change in the industry?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one is the you know, what I alluded to earlier with methane intensity standards for um, natural gas and maybe oil and gas supply chains around the world. If there were to be, you know, robust, transparent, trusted, independent measurements of the actual methane emissions and methane intensity of those global supply chains from different suppliers, then those could be fairly significant shifts. Another example, maybe closer to home, is the Permian Basin. Uh, so, the Permian Basin is the largest oil producing region in the world now. It's in West Texas and, and, and Southwest New Mexico. Many of these emissions are, are quite large and intermittent compared to other parts of the U.S. And in, uh, about half of the emissions that we see in the Permian Basin are relatively persistent. That is, they're probably there most of the time, which implies they may be a leak or a malfunction. Another 25% of the emissions that we see when the operators go out and do a follow-up on the ground, they don't find it, probably because the emissions are very intermittent. But the other 25% that they report are so-called expected emissions. The emissions that are expected include flaring of gas. uh, And and you may ask, well, why is gas being flared instead of sold? And the reason is in the Permian, it seems pretty obvious that it's in a state of overproduction. More gas is being produced than can be hauled away given limitations in the physical infrastructure, things like pipelines. So you could imagine that if there were additional spotlights and public awareness um, in, in civic society and on the part of on consumers, that there are practices that are resulting in a large fraction of, of uh, wasted gas, we could see changes in what is considered, quote-unquote, expected practice, not just fixing the unexpected leaks.
0: Are you helping to extend the life of the oil and gas industry?
1: Um, I don't think that what we're trying to do will directly impact the how to say this the transition period uh, of gas the the way I like to or or or, or if I'll say fossil fuel energy and I just say that because you know my own naive assessment is it's a fairly complex landscape of incentives and actors and what we the, the idea that what we're doing could prolong or extend something is I'm skeptical of.
0: Or are you enabling, because there's some people who say, look, we got to get off fossil fuels as fast as possible. The climate science is scary. Uh, We got to keep it in the ground. And I can see you saying, well, we're, you know, we're cleaning up a dirty industry, but I could also see saying, well, you're enabling them to, you know.
1: Well I I guess I have a different perspective. I mean is is the alternative to not make the measurements and just and just push to shut it all down and hope for the best. I'm 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 pragmatic in the sense that unfortunately I think that human efforts to mitigate greenhouse gases are not moving as fast as they need to because it's complicated because there are many you know many conflicting forces. And so, my feeling is, and I think this is grounded in the science, is there is an opportunity to ha- get real traction now, not in 20, 30 years, but the next five to 10 years to significantly reduce emissions of methane and other greenhouse gases now and have an immediate climate benefit. And, and when I, so, if we're talking about action now, we're talking about the infrastructure that's going to be in place over the next decade. So, I don't think what we're doing to help pinpoint and expedite repair of methane leaks in any way uh, should impact or um, dilute efforts to transition to truly renewable energy sources. I think it's just a pragmatism that someone needs to take action now to clean up uh, what is a very, a very uh, wasteful set of infrastructure and in, in, in practices right now in the energy sector, in the waste management sector, in the agriculture sector.
0: President Biden has proposed a 16 billion dollar plan to plug abandoned oil wells that are leaking greenhouse gases fixing hundreds of thousands of orphaned wells is favored by Republicans and Democrats can carbon mapper help guide that program if it is enacted
1: Yeah I mean um, I think this was long overdue and it's critically needed um, the um, you know the the Biden administration's recent announcement of cutting emissions greenhouse gas and emissions um by fifty percent by the end of this decade that's that's uh you know less than eight years now is incredibly ambitious and I think that uh one thing that is that I think is still missing is a commitment uh, a recognition and a commitment to make science based emissions data part of the solution. um I think that um you know, we've talked about the current state of the art and the fact that um uh, existing monitoring systems are pretty sparse, and so I think if um, if the U.S. is truly serious about being a climate leader on the international stage, then then I think this suggests a need for serious investments in in critical climate data infrastructure, like the kinds of measurements we're talking about um, um, to operationalize and scale up uh, methods. We just we, you know we just don't have time for do overs and missed opportunities because the data is incomplete or bad.
0: On a personal level, what keeps you up at night? Do you really think that technology is going to solve
1: this? What keeps me up at night is is the fact that um, that with the data we have, the answer is unequivocal that the window uh, um, for action on climate change is narrowing. I think you know that there is still an opportunity uh, to to bend the curve on emissions and avoid you know, the worst case scenarios, but that window is rapidly closing. We will not solve everything, obviously, with greenhouse gas monitoring, but our, uh, we've perceived that Carbon Mapper um, with this unique Partnership will help fill some critical gaps and it will do it quickly. And hopefully, government will pick up the ball and run with it uh, in, in the second half of the decade. So, but this need not all be on the backs of philanthropy going forward.
0: And on the note of philanthropy, we should note that after we booked you, uh, we realized that one of your philanthropic supporters, the Lawrence family, is also a philanthropic supporter of Climate One. Riley Duran is CEO of Carbon Mapper and a research scientist at the University of Arizona been talking about mapping methane, carbon, and other climate-eating gases. Riley, thanks for coming on Climate One.
1: My pleasure, Greg. Nice talking to you.
0: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the power and value of maps to help us respond to the climate emergency. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.